This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Meredith Hughes, Cambridge, Massachusetts. The Yosemite by John Muir. Chapter 6, Part D. The Mountain Hemlock. As the juniper is the most stubborn and unshakable of trees in the Yosemite region, the mountain hemlock, Tsuga mertensiana, is the most graceful and pliant and sensitive. Until it reaches a height of fifty or sixty feet, it is sumptuously clothed down to the ground with drooping branches, which are divided again and again into delicate waving sprays, grouped and arranged in ways that are indescribably beautiful, and profusely adorned with small brown cones. The flowers are also peculiarly beautiful and effective, the female dark rich purple, the male blue, of so fine and pure a tone that the best azure of the mountain sky seems to be condensed in them. Though apparently the most delicate and feminine of all the mountain trees, it grows best where the snow lies deepest, at a height of from 9,000 to 9,500 feet, in hollows on the northern slopes of mountains and ridges. But under all circumstances, sheltered from heavy winds or in bleak exposure to them, well fed or starved, even at its highest limit ten thousand five hundred feet above the sea, on exposed ridge tops where it has to crouch and huddle close in low thickets, it still contrives to put forth its sprays and branches in forms of invincible beauty, while on moist, well drained moraines it displays a perfectly tropical luxuriance of foliage, flowers, and fruit. The snow of the first winter storm is frequently soft, and lodges in dew-dense leafy branches, weighing them down against the trunk, and the slender drooping axis, bending lower and lower as the load increases, at length reaches the ground, forming an ornamental arch. Then, as storm succeeds storm and snow is heaped on snow, the whole tree is at last buried, not again to see the light of day or move leaf or limb until set free by the spring thaws in June or July. Not only the youngest saplings are thus carefully covered and put to sleep in the whitest of white beds for five or six months of the year, but trees thirty feet high or more. From April to May, when the snow by repeated thawing and freezing is firmly compacted, you may ride over the prostrate groves without seeing a single branch or leaf of them. No other of our alpine conifers so finely veils its strength. Poised in thin white sunshine, clad with branches from head to foot, it towers in unassuming majesty, drooping as if unaffected with the aspiring tendencies of its race, loving the ground, conscious of heaven and joyously receptive of its blessings, reaching out its branches like sensitive tentacles, feeling the light and reveling in it. The largest specimen I ever found was nineteen feet seven inches in circumference. It was growing on the edge of Lake Hollow, north of Mount Hoffman, at an elevation of nine thousand two hundred fifty feet above the level of the sea, and was probably about a hundred feet in height. Fine groves of mature trees, ninety to a hundred feet in height, are growing near the base of Mount Conus. It is widely distributed from near the south extremity of the High Sierra northward along the Cascade Mountains of Oregon and Washington, and the coast ranges of British Columbia to Alaska, where it was first discovered in 1827. Its northernmost limit, 
so far as I have observed, is in the icy fjords of Prince William Sound, in latitude sixty-one degrees, where it forms pure forests at the level of the sea, growing tall and majestic on the banks of glaciers. There, as in the Yosemite region, it is ineffably beautiful, the very loveliest of all the American conifers. THE WHITE BARK PINE The dwarf pine, or white bark pine, Pinus albicaulis, forms the extreme edge of the timberline throughout nearly the whole extent of the range on both flanks. It is first met growing with the two-leaved pine on the upper margin of the alpine belt, as an erect tree from fifteen to thirty feet high, and from one to two feet in diameter, hence it goes straggling up the flanks of the summit peaks, upon moraines or crumbling ledges, wherever it can get a foothold, to an elevation of from ten thousand to twelve thousand feet, where it dwarfs to a mass of crumpled branches, covered with slender shoots, each tipped with a short, close-packed leaf tassel. The bark is smooth and purplish, in some places almost white. The flowers are bright scarlet and rose-purple, giving a very flowery appearance little looked for in such a tree. The cones are about three inches long, an inch and a half in diameter, grow in rigid clusters, and are dark chocolate in color while young, and bear beautiful pearly white seeds about the size of peas, most of which are eaten by chipmunks and the Clark's crows. Pines are commonly regarded as sky-loving trees that must necessarily aspire or die. This species forms a marked exception, crouching and creeping in compliance with the most rigorous demands of climate, yet enduring bravely to a more advanced age than many of its lofty relatives in the sunlands far below it. Seen from a distance, it would never be taken for a tree of any kind. For example, on Cathedral Peak there is a scattered growth of this pine, creeping like mosses over the roof, nowhere giving hint of an ascending axis. While, approached quite near, it still appears matty and healthy, and one experiences no difficulty in walking over the top of it, yet it is seldom absolutely prostrate, usually attaining a height of three or four feet, with a main trunk, and with branches outspread above it, as if in ascending they had been checked by a ceiling against which they had been compelled to spread horizontally. The winter snow is a sort of ceiling, lasting half the year, while the pressed surface is made yet smoother by violent winds armed with cutting sand grains that bear down any shoot which offers to rise much above the general level, and that carve the dead trunks and branches in beautiful patterns. During stormy nights I have often camped snugly beneath the interlacing arches of this little pine. The needles which have accumulated for centuries make fine beds, a fact well known to other mountaineers, such as deer and wild sheep, who paw out oval hollows and lie beneath the larger trees in safe and comfortable concealment. This lowly dwarf reaches a far greater age than would be guessed. A specimen that I examined, growing at an elevation of 10,700 feet, yet looked as though it might be plucked up by the roots, for it was only three and a half inches in diameter, and its topmost tassel reached hardly three feet above the ground. Cutting it half through and counting the annual rings with the aid of a lens, I found its age to be no less than 255 years. Another specimen, about the same height, with a trunk six inches in diameter, I found to be 426 years old forty years ago, and one of its supple branchlets, hardly an eighth of an inch in diameter inside the bark, was seventy-five years old, 
and so filled with oily balsam and seasoned by storms, that I tied it in knots like a whipcord. THE NUT PINE In going across the range from the Tuolumne River Soda Springs to Mono Lake, one makes the acquaintance of the curious little nut pine, Pinus monophylla. It dots the eastern flank of the Sierra, to which it is mostly restricted in grayish, bush-like patches, from the margin of the sage plains to an elevation of from 7,000 to 8,000 feet. A more contented, fruitful, and unaspiring conifer could not be conceived. All the species we have been sketching make departures more or less distant from the typical spire form, but none goes so far as this. Without any apparent cause, it keeps near the ground, throwing out crooked, divergent branches, like an orchard apple-tree, and seldom pushes a single shoot higher than fifteen or twenty feet above the ground. The average thickness of the trunk is, perhaps, about ten or twelve inches. The leaves are mostly undivided, like round awls, instead of being separated, like those of other pines, into twos and threes and fives. The cones are green while growing, and are usually found all over the tree, forming quite a marked feature as seen against the bluish-gray foliage. They are quite small, only about two inches in length, and seem to have but little space for seeds. But when we come to open them, we find that about half the entire bulk of the cone is made up of sweet, nutritious nuts, nearly as large as hazelnuts. This is undoubtedly the most important food tree on the Sierra, and furnishes the Mona, Carson, and Walker River Indians with more and better nuts than all the other species taken together. It is the Indian's own tree, and many a white man have they killed for cutting it down. Being so low, the cones are readily beaten off with poles, and the nuts procured by roasting them until the scales open. In bountiful seasons, a single Indian may gather thirty or forty bushels. End of chapter 6, part D